0: Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program,
1: Lawrence Millman
0: will join us to discuss the,
1: at the end of the world.
0: A- so stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000, and our world famous question a week coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show.
1: With us, we have Lawrence Millman, author, ethnographer, explorer, and mycologist. He's in Cambridge right now, and we're so lucky to be able to talk with him. Lawrence, would you go ahead and say hello to our listeners?
2: Greetings, listeners.
1: Lawrence has written 16 books and explored the Arctic countless times. The book that caught my attention specifically is titled At the End of the World, A True Story of Murder in the Arctic, published in 2017. The book talks of murders in remote circles of the Arctic that took place in 1941. It highlights violence in the name of religion, while at the same time, it wonders if technology threatens the humanity that remains in our culture. Lawrence, I was wondering if you couldn't give our audience your favorite overview of this book.
3: I'll be glad to do that, Kristen. I was collecting the material for this book in the Belcher Islands, otherwise known as Senac, in starting in two thousand and one, interviewing elders who remembered the the dreadful acts in one thousand nine hundred and forty one where a pair of Inuit declared themselves respectfully God and Jesus and decided to dispose of anyone. Who didn't believe in them because that person was Satan. And Christianity had only recently come to the islands, the Belcher Islands, and it was not altogether understood. The previous religion, if you want to call it that, uh, was animism, and there was a belief that everything was important and everything had a soul, be that uh, a bird, an ant a drift log or a piece of shit but I I kept puzzling I I was having a hard time writing this up and uh, years passed and then I had a revelation I was in East Greenland and I heard about a young woman who was texting and unaware of a polar bear sneaking up on her and at the last moment she saw it screamed and it loped away And my revelation was that I couldn't write about the past, i.e. these murders, without writing about the present, specifically the religion of the present, screened technology that means television, computers, iPads, and especially Mm iDevices, which I have come to believe is the current reigning religion and it is a religion in the hands of well, let's say capitalism in the Silicon Valley has Mm -hmm. admitted to purposely creating addictions I don't need that they need to create these addictions because I think it's there in our species to be addicted to anything that gives one an easy way of dealing with the world so Ultimately, then, the Inuit in the Belcher Islands lost a sense of nature when they came around to accepting Christianity and individuals who spend all their time in front of a, a screen, be it walking with one. And I should start, I mean, one of these days I'm going to begin writing down the number of times a day that I'm nearly smashed into by a, by a device user walking and <laughs> oblivious to the world around him or her, Right. young and old. But in any event, such people are oblivious to nature. So that's my overview of the book.
1: The way that you connect the actual historical anecdote involving murders in the Arctic to the threats of technology is what struck me as prevalent just because in my close circles technology and ethics and the adverse effects are really of concern and provoke this deep prodding my my mm-hmm. generation and people of older generations really wonder how we could even glance back at history for answers when we've really never had the ability to multitask the way that we do currently with technology
3: mm-hmm. My own feeling is that it is causing our species to move in a direction no less destructive to that species than the introduction of Christianity was to the Inuit in the Belcher Islands. And as I said earlier, it is our reigning religion, our global religion now. It will continue to be like this, and I have... Uh, Not a whole lot of hope for the future. I believe that we're in a a new dark age, and as with the previous dark age, the survival of human intelligence will depend on a few individuals. I won't refer to myself, but I think of Mm. people like Wendell Berry, who said if it's up-to-date to to use a computer, it's even more up-to-date not to use one one should save oneself and one's immediate uh, friend, friends and family, rather than attempt to save humanity uh, and hope that uh, our descendants will somehow emerge from the abyss. I, I have to admit that I was at a conference on climate change and people who, who attended it were staying in local hotels and so on. And this is a four-minute walk. And one of the mm-hmm. people who was talking about climate change drove. He said, well, I have a bad leg. But I was watching him walk around. I mean, essentially, it's, it's all in the abstract. And uh, the 21st century homo sapiens, or I shall call them, mm-hmm. insopiens, can come up with all sorts of requests and ideas and presentations and even go for marches, but it's not going to do much good. I think I would quote Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish philosopher who said, one person can do nothing to save humanity. He can only record its decline. That's what I feel I've done in at the end of the world.
1: That seems like it plays into your perspective that we are in a dark age. My circle talks about whether or not we're in a dark age or a golden age.
2: Really? And to,
1: well, yeah, my argument every time is that we are in a technological golden age, therefore we would be in a humanitarian dark age, and two can never coexist. And I'm wondering if you agree with my perspective that we're in a technological golden age, nothing else can coexist with a technological golden age. Everything else has to be in a dark place.
2: Well, I
3: suspect so. I mean, technological golden age strikes me as an oxymoron. If You know, I don't necessarily think that seeing one's Although human beings uh, become robots, is golden. Um, so I would I would not say yes that it's a technological golden age. I'd say it's just an example of oh something uh, analogous to uh, uh, all the epidemics of the medieval periods. I mean, this is not so much the black plague as it is the digital plague. Um, and sure. part of it is is like the absence of any experience accompanying the obsession with these digital toys. Like, I mean, I'm constantly seeing people take pictures and then take another picture and then take another picture. But In the old days, a photographer would take a picture and it would be part of an experience. He or she would look at a mountain, think how lovely it was. But now it's sort of, it's a selfie, and then the next picture, and then the next picture. There's no experiential content whatsoever thanks to digital technology. And that's why, by the way, with respect to my, I've written a book, couple of books on fungi, but one of them is a guidebook to the mushrooms of New England. And I held out for illustrations rather than photographs. Illustrations tell us more than a photograph. The illustration can tell you, you know, you know be subtle uh, with respect to uh, fungi. I mean, different periods of growth have different shapes, uh, whereas mm-hmm. with You know, a photograph—it's one photograph, or uh, or or maybe uh, two. What I said ultimately, though, this is uh, a period of time where our what Dylan Thomas referred to as our five and country senses
2: are Mm.
3: disappearing uh, in the face of technology, and I, I dare say that I'm not going to call that golden
1: that's a fair argument i think in regards to pictures what you're saying about photography as having lost the experiential aspect with the rise of technology and accessibility of photographs and that sort of thing you know we're not using film photography every time we hope to capture a photo it's very accessible now but i know exactly. it's one of the Yeah, one of the conversations I've had surrounding this topic is the act of taking a picture as detracting from the experience you're having, you know. You might be in a really beautiful place or enjoying a really beautiful moment. And a thought that may come to you is, this is, you know, a moment where I would normally take a picture because based on my standards that I've created, it's worthy. But at the same time, you have this thought that. Well, I can't even take a picture because the effort and the shift in perspective that would be required of me to take the picture would detract from my actual experience, so I know I can't take one, and I won't, even though this is one of those beautiful moments that would normally qualify for me, a
2: picture.
3: Well, one way of, of dealing with that is not even to carry, well, I don't have a cell phone. I would never be caught dead with one of those unspeakable objects, and I would be more or less part of the living dead if I owned one. And I argue in the book, by the way, that the sashaying back and forth in a zombie-like mode of people who were playing with their eye devices or talking on them and moving at a relatively slow speed is the origin of our obsession with zombies. But... I usually don't have any kind of camera. I mean, it ends up in my memory rather than in, in the bowels of a toy. I give quite a few mushroom walks, and I should say at the beginning, leave all your cameras behind. But what invariably happens is I find something, I'm talking about it, and someone puts their camera, and this happened two days ago, and it was an old woman, not a young person, mm-hmm. right between the eyes of all the onlookers and the specimen I was talking about, I moved it away so they could see it. I mean, she blotted it out, and that's a metaphor for what's happening: we're blotting out the natural world.
1: People ought to want to experience the natural world. is easier said than it is to convince the entire societal contract. Yes. As a writer, you're sometimes forced to write digitally. Is that something that you've grown comfortable with and accepting of, or do you yourself wish that it was all engaged in print physically?
3: I I do wish that it was all engaged in print physically, but for me, Mm -hmm. I write cursively. I write everything longhand the first time. Uh, and then I'll revise okay. it longhand. Uh, so I don't feel that I'm imprisoned by what we would call digitalis. And then in the final draft, I put it on in a file on my computer. But my, my uh, inspiration in front of a computer dips, whereas when I'm using my hand and a pencil or a pen and scrawling all over the place, the inspiration grows and it's like almost an art form when I'm writing because I put lines out to the margin and and so on and I scratch out things and if I'm really annoyed with a stupid word I wrote, I'll scratch it out so that it'll go right through the paper. And you know, it's a physical act, and it's a sensual act. There is nothing at all sensual about typing something into a word file. Yeah, with respect to books, I still don't understand how people with Kindles manage to read. I mean, I can't, I, I, I'm good for about a page and a half or two pages on a screen, and then I have to have hard copy. But I'm thinking geographically, I think north, south, east, and west on a particular page, and I know where in a book that page is. I don't know the exact page number, but I know almost its whereabouts, so I flip back, and I'm not certain it's easy to do with a Kindle.
1: You get an yes. actual geographic understanding of where something is in a book because you see it in three dimensions and how big is it and thick and Mm -hmm. the dimensions of it help you just like a
2: map yep
3: it's just like a map exactly i make the rude remark when i get tired of people talking about their kindles i put on an accent a russian accent use the word ketel now a ketel is a, a 10 foot High invisible six-legged polar bear in Chukchi Siberian lore that specializes Hello. in eating people. It's a supernatural monster Hello. called the Kedel. Mm-hmm. And when I hear someone going on about how they love their uh, Kindle, I say, "Well, I would never, I would never have a Kedel anywhere near me." K- Kindle, they say. I said Ketel, the e- almost same thing. Almost same thing. You will be eaten alive.
1: Annotating, you start off when you're first learning how to do it, they give you structure, and then, of course, later it's more freeform. And you just simply cannot be as creative or personal in the way that you're annotating on a Kindle as you can be with a physical copy of a book. I mean, you just can't draw on the pages or, Mm -hmm. you know... And teachers have been telling us that, too, you know, taking handwritten notes, you're going to think about forming the letters. For me, a hard copy of a book is even more lucrative in that I can annotate it much more freely and personally. And even then, once the book is finished and all the annotations are or are not inside it, it's gained character in the way it looks and the hand it's passed through. So, I mean, for me, that's irreplaceable. Uh,
3: What's taught in schools is... Playing with a a device That has a keyboard So kids at a very young age Are taught to Distance themselves from the actual world And this is why uh, I like to give talks at Waldorf Schools, You, you, you know Waldorf Schools, right?
1: Yeah, there's one in Chicago
3: Yeah, they Focus on storytelling Not screens And it's all about Interaction and the human voice and writing. I mean, you know, the problem once again is that everything is moving in the direction of facility, making it easier and easier and easier. I've spent a lot of time with the Inuit in the Arctic, and I watched how they themselves, paragons of uh, an actual physical life, dealing mentally with the uh, difficult circumstances of climate in which they live, although increasingly less so owing to climate change, have become more and more globalized, more and more like us, and less able to do the things they used to be able to do. Uh, And that's also somewhat in my book. As as part of the, but I mean another thing that makes them less able is climate change itself. Uh, hunters, which who once were able to go out in the ice and hunt, can no longer do so, and they go to stores much much easier. But what they buy is right. junk food, and right. that that damages their health. Whereas uh, for millennia they had lived on fresh meat, uh, yeah. and suddenly nothing but potato chips and candy bars. Sure. Yeah, so it's not a surprise that diabetes is rampant all through the north.
1: Right, because also they've had even less time to be accustomed to that sort of accessibility and diet than western culture has. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Right.
3: Yeah, we we moved there uh at a not the record pace. It wasn't overnight the way it is uh in the north.
2: Sure, uh, Got
3: it. So our systems have had a chance to adapt. Uh, whereas it was pretty sudden up there, it has been uh, a year or two or three or four.
0: Why?
1: Why is that? Well, more isolated, much but offer. also
3: more. There's more an attempt to make local life less local, make it more globalized. So you'll find villages um, whose unspoken model is my satellite dish is bigger than your satellite dish, and wow.
2: you'll find
3: any number of people whose parents, and especially their grandparents, wouldn't have known what a television is now, you know, sitting in front of one all the time. So that's Uh, what the
1: West in the 50s.
3: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Could well be. Right. Now the most popular form of, when I was in the Belcher Islands uh, in 2001, I was actually there a little bit before that, too, in the 90s, uh, it's a type of music called throat singing. And, you know, rather than go into it, I suggested, uh, uh, I hate to use this word in this interview, but people Google it, into it throat singing. And they might, or go to, go to YouTube, and they'll have examples of the, it's it's almost counterpoint uh, in a single person. Uh wow. The way different parts of the throat create sure. different tunes. Uh, but, Women, and it's something that women do. Uh, I mean, something women did to occupy themselves while their men were out hunting. But now it's sort of disappearing, and what's replaced it is rap. Rap is now the most popular form of music in uh, the Belcher Islands. Uh, This acquaintance of mine made a film, it's a superb film, called People of a Feather, and it's about... Hyder ducks and their decline in Hudson Bay, and especially the Belcher Islands, owing to a couple of things: climate change and a lot of uh, fresh water coming into Hudson Bay from all the myriad dams that hydro Quebec. sorry, I, I do consider those two words an obscenity, and if you wish to okay. edit them out uh, being an obscenity, uh, hydro Quebec has dammed any number of rivers in on the Quebec oh, wow. side, and it's it's, effect, it's affected the salinity, et cetera, of the waters in Hudson Bay. Okay. But in any event, this fellow made a film, uh, and there's a chunk of it in the middle that shows teenagers doing rap. And I, I said to him, I said, you know, but I, I was being very, very picky. I said, you shouldn't include mm-hmm. that in there. And he said, I sh- I, why shouldn't I? It's the truth. Well, it is the truth, and he was absolutely right. It's what's there now. I wanted to see more images of diving hydro ducks going after sea urchins, people on the ice looking out on vistas, etc. But the way it is now is teenagers are heavily into rap. Sure. And uh, they didn't get it through osmosis. They got it through television. And computers, where they saw, and you know, it's it's part of the globalization that's going on today. And uh, you know, global identity is not the same as an actual identity.
1: Certainly, and I think your colleague was right to include it, just because it does show the the truth in globalization and how it's mm-hmm. widespread, even to remote corners of the Arctic and in once remote villages. Just because they didn't have the World Wide Web, the internet is a driving force of globalization, and it's
2: crazy oh, because it hasn't
1: even
3: been around for fifty years, even close no, to here. No, years. it hasn't been around for. Uh, it's barely been around for thirty years. Uh, exactly. But what we have to do, perhaps, is put you back uh, a, a few steps and talk a little bit about the first version of this interview. Do you do you want to say something about that before I uh, put it within the context of this interview?
1: No, I'd absolutely love to. So Lawrence and I had an interview that took place maybe a month ago or a little less. And in the process of editing it, I'd lost the file with no no hopes of recovering it, which left me in immense frustration and dismay, all due to digitalization. Whereas if I could have got myself to Cambridge, and sat down with Lawrence in his apartment, you can guarantee the interview would be obviously more meaningful for the both of us, as much as words can do. They can't do everything. So my personal feelings towards digitalization and doing interviews over the phone are on a scale of positive to negative, they are negative. Does a phone allow me to talk to someone across the world and have a meaningful conversation with them? Yes, and am I grateful for that? Of course. Telephones have allowed me to talk to sick relatives who I wasn't able to see, you know, that day. So that's something that, you know, anyone pretty much can be grateful for in technology. It's just got some adverse frustrations and more than frustrations, like we've been talking about, threats. So it's kind of a funny anecdote that the results of this interview, this New but similar, you know, talk that we're having is due to my personal so pause trying to get acquainted with technology and doing a phone interview. So, you but, know, uh, it's I very know a
2: number
3: of people who are who are acquainted who've lost files, a computer crash, a lightning strike, something like that. I know one or
1: two who've lost, entire,
3: yeah, <laughs> it, 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 who've lost entire books. Um, we think of you know. This type of thing is being infinitely more advanced, but uh, not terribly long ago, I would record interviews over the phone, not digitally, but with a tape recorder, a cassette recorder. Uh, And I mean, I was doing interviews with uh, fellow explorers of the Arctic for a magazine, and I would just record the interview, and uh, I dare say that uh, not once, when I was playing the cassette, did... Anything crash, right. uh, at all, and you know, I mean, this is a way of saying that improved technology is not always improved technology. And I, I think one of the one of the things that has led me to my uh, Weltanschauung, my view of the world, is that okay. I've spent years ago quite a bit of time collecting old stories, legends, folklore, etc. From traditional peoples, first in the British Isles and then in the Arctic, and these people were people who were almost always old—old old being, I don't know, sixty or more—and who had sure. their their uh, who were based in sort of a pre-literate culture. And I would argue, and and I have, and it's it's gotten people upset with me. <laughs> I don't think schooling is necessary. For everyone, I think that, that people have cultural values that schooling destroys. And uh, this was true in the West of Ireland, where I lived, and I was watching oral traditions and different sorts of beliefs disappear with enforced schooling and teaching reading, writing with which is, in fact is a form of globalization
2: mm-hmm.
3: rather than a localization. And the thing is that, you know, I ended up valuing the spoken word. I ended up valuing, valuing tradition. I valued even taboos. Uh, the Inuit would have a taboo that if a menstruating woman steps over your kayak, or even the, one of the oars of your kayak, heading out to sea, you're going to have a very bad experience. Mm. Uh, so you stay at home if that's happened, if she by accident happens to have done that. okay. So somebody's going to come along and say, well, I mean, it's a good thing that that died out. It was rather silly. But the fact of the matter is it, it was embedded in their culture. And I'm currently writing a book where I'm talking about the, you know, it's called the Fungipedia and, and you know, just different sections on fungi. One mm-hmm. which is on the current rage uh, of people more or less affluent in medicinal mushrooms. Okay. Um, And, you know, what's called chaga and all sorts of other things that they go to, uh, Whole Foods or other such places to buy. But there was a use by traditional people of fungi for similar purposes. But Mm -hmm. it seems to me that when something is embedded in your culture and you use it, When it's embedded and its use goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, it becomes part of your pursuit of health and uh, might even work. Whereas when it's not, when it's something that is simply a new fad and you go out and buy it, uh, no matter how much placebo you can brew up, it probably won't work. Belief systems need to be time-honored. You can't just simply throw something in your mouth, as it is common in America to do. Get it at the supermarket, remove it from its plasticine, eat it, and don't even ask where it came from. That's part of the facility of American life. Uh, Don't don't ask where it came from, just grab it and eat it.
1: Certainly, I've done that in my life. We all have. Yeah, last year when I was starting my sophomore year of college, I was like... Okay, so I'm gonna stockpile some supplements to help me perform and be focused and sharp in school. Sorry, so what kind I of did, supplements you know,
3: what kind of supplements were they?
1: No, I'll get them from my pantry. I have this supplement called Dopa Bean. You pronounce oh, yes. it mucana purinus. So some research that I had done had led me to pick up this bottle.
3: Of yeah, I, I I'll tell you that for me the best medicinal is coffee without coffee, coffee. Mm. with coffee my system soars and without it 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 goes <coughs> into a precipitous decline and people talk about um you know these these fungal supplements etc and i say mm-hmm. well i know how to make them really work and they say how 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 mm-hmm. and i say well make a decoction of them, and they're there with excited expressions, and then put it in uh, very, very dark coffee. <laughs> and then I say, even better, if you really want a superb medicinal and then they look very excited, put it in vodka.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or throw it away and drink the vodka, correct? Ah,
3: yeah, that's better. Yes, I, <laughs> I'll, I'm i going to steal that from you. <laughs> yeah, that's That's very good. That's very good indeed. (laughs) I think what this is rooted in, the use of uh, plants. You go to different health food stores and they stress, oh, this is Mm -hmm. a natural remedy. What it's rooted in is we've distanced ourselves completely from nature. And when we try to get back in touch with it, we'll take anything that is offered us, even if it's something commercial disguised as natural. Uh, okay and I mean I think that's that 's part of the reason that so many of these items and why organic is is such a important word nowadays in the old days, no one said you know, organic or inorganic, whether it was in our country or anywhere else mm-hmm. uh, they were living in a f- infinitely more natural world, but now that we 've lost it. Our attempts to get back in touch with it simply result in, you know, buying this or buying that in the forlorn hope that because it's natural, it will work on us. We forget that it's being marketed by some capitalist out there who's, there was some conference and uh, the, the company said, you know, I think the word nature or the word green has to be used this product. And here's what you should draw. You should draw a couple of trees.
2: <laughs> Somebody's going
3: to say, uh, 100 years from now, excuse me, but what is a tree? Yeah. Um, because they will all be lost. Because, of course, if you, you know don't value nature and don't see it, how would you preserve it?
1: Right. Go Do ahead. You want to talk a bit about the work that you've been focusing on within mycology and the fungi growing on Alpells that you've been studying and seeking out. Oh
3: yes, yes. Um, well, with another hat, I am a mycologist. I study fungi, and I'm um, especially eager to uh, study them from the point of view of what are they doing in their respective habitats. Mm -hmm. How are they acting? Are they uh, uh, a symbiont with something? Are they a saprotroph maybe, or are they a parasite? Uh, And what, especially is a fungus growing on wood doing to that wood? Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, I am, again, this this is not altogether irrelevant. Uh, I am watching mycology be swept up and replaced by molecular biology. Fungi now are, the names are all changing. The binomials are changing. Okay. Uh, owing to what the evolutionary uh, relationship is. Uh, right. And uh, what a friend of mine said, I mean, they're changing with promiscuous, abandoned Uh, A friend of mine says that he's developing er, early onset Alzheimer's because he he doesn't uh, Mm. each with each passing year he knows less, Um, right? uh, Fewer names, in fact. Uh, I'm less. Concerned for myself because I'm, I'm a field related person and i like to see what they're doing uh, what a fungus is doing in the field rather than in a petri dish uh, or in a lab mm. and you know but I'm thinking too with respect to the the so-called citizen scientists out there who uh, were trying to educate people who you know might be t- so taken by fungi that they might want to preserve habitats in order to preserve them uh, mm-hmm. And you know they they invariably are befuddled with all these name changes. Guidebooks increasingly are using different names. So if you have a guidebook that's this year and compare it with a really good one from thirty years ago, the names will be quite different. The last oh, wow. binomials. So what I would i was you know I sort of stalled on this, but I like the mm-hmm. idea of just coming up with common names specimens and using those, uh, and using those on my walks. And actually, when I lead the walk, I try to use as few names as possible and just get people interested in a particular thing, like uh, symbiosis, uh, what's going on here between a fungus and algae to create a lichen, or, Mm -hmm. you know, with respect to most of the mushroom type mushrooms we see, those are, are indeed symbiotic with the roots of a plant. Or tree, and they're getting nutrients, especially sugars, in return for uh, nutrients like phosphorus and potassium and indeed, right. nitrogen. And talking about that, talking about from an environmental point of view, and I don't have to worry about uh, the promiscuous name changes that are going on uh, in the halls of academe. The funding. For mycology focuses not on ecology, on okay, go out and make a, uh, a, a inventory of the fungi in this endangered habitat. No, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, it focuses on okay, you want to want to find out what this is related to. Here, we'll give you five thousand dollars. Sequence it.
1: Is that because placing mushrooms and fungi in a phylogenic pattern really heavily laid into because medicinal traits of plants can be predicted when you have them in that sort of evolutionary layout. Mm-hmm. So you think that that's motivation behind that, you No, know, I think that it. might
3: be something to do with it. But in the papers that you see that have cl- cladograms squatting right. in the middle of them, there's mm-hmm. no reference whatsoever. I mean, oh. the, the person who's gotten that grant... Uh, is writing exclusively scientific papers. Uh, These are often government-funded grants. Uh, I might be going out on a limb here or just betraying yet another prejudice when I uh, say that I don't think the government is interested in funding anything of an environmental or an ecological nature. Molecular biology for its own sake. Phylogenics, yes. Well, here's the money. As a result... Field mycologists are becoming rarer and rarer. I think maybe 50 years ago in England, there were several hundred. Now there are five. And, you know, rarer and rarer here as well. And uh, uh, professors of mycology are less and less able to identify specimens you show them uh, because they're not going out to see them, but they can identify a DNA specimen uh, just not one that's an actual specimen. Okay. And I see this as being really. I, I mean, you know, I, you know, I said I was wearing another hat, but it, it's sort of mm-hmm. the more you try to wear another hat, the more it's simply the same hat uh, mm-hmm. put on in a slightly different angle. Right. Uh, which is, I see this as, as you know, part and parcel of our own. Uh, technological obsession uh, that is uh, unstoppable. Well, when I started out, you know, you would get professors, you'd bring specimens to them, and they could identify them. Right Now, more and more, they can't, because it's not their bailiwick anymore to do that. Fidistics is their bailiwick. Uh, I'm interested in diversity and just the, the feeling of, of I see it finding an unusual or strange or even sometimes a common specimen. And it, I think it's part of, uh, I'm getting back in touch with my hunter-gatherer self, uh, going outside and looking for things. Uh, and even as a young kid, that's what my, I really enjoy doing. Uh, I have a column for a magazine called Fungi that is now being published, but it's the best Mushroom Magazine out there It combines everything It will have an article about DNA And stuff
2: mm-hmm. It will also
3: have an article about ethnomycology You know, uses of fungi by native people uh, okay. on, on plant pathogens And on edibles Just the whole works And I have a column called Small Wonders And these are species that are Oh, one millimeter or less in size And that you can see really only with a hand lens you're out there in in the natural world, and you think, "Oh well, there's nothing there." Well, look harder, because there's no such thing. as nothing there.
2: Right. Um,
3: uh, there there may be, if the current uh, administration uh, has its way, be uh, nothing out there. But uh, right now, we've. I mean, I'll go up to a tree, and in the resin of a pine, there's a tiny yellow cup. Oh, it's, you know, it, the larger specimens are about 0.6 millimeters, uh, called Saria Resinae. Uh, and they're just so wonderful to find. Uh, but you wouldn't know they're there unless you look for them there.
1: You find them in uh, Cambridge?
3: Uh, I have found them, at, well, in Cambridge, yes. There's a, there's a nature area in Cambridge. It's at, in the resin of pines. Uh, oh, i it. guarantee you have them uh wherever you have pine forest in the upper midwest you know there's a uh a, a type of fungus that interests me quite a bit called ongano o n y g e n a and uh its onaganas are in the larger uh order of ongons which includes among other things uh ringworm uh Toenail fungi, etc. Okay, uh, uh, and also some grow on horns, but uh, uh, and on hoofs, not on antlers. Uh, antlers are bone. Uh, mm-hmm. Onychogalles are keratin inhabitants, uh, not bone inhabitants. And uh, the ones that interest me, uh, there's a species called on a gain of corvina, that you find in owl pellets. I've never found it, uh, as a matter of fact. It could be, it's very, very vaguely documented, and it could be pellets of only certain owls, like snowy owls up north or in the Alps. The same species grows on the petioles of uh, the Feathers of Dead Birds. I found one on a red-tailed hawk not so long ago. Uh, and they're just little inch-tall, whitish entities. They're not terribly charismatic, unless you think <laughs> of them as charismatic and take the whole picture rather than simply think, oh, well, to be charismatic, something needs to be blue or pink. Sure. These are whitish or cream-colored. Right. Uh, and, you know, they're little whitish fungi growing on uh, the pellets uh, actually in uh, on the bones and the uh, uh, vomited up debris from inside the owl because the owl can't digest everything it eats so
2: right. it
3: manages to uh, digest what it can and then vomit up the rest whether they're sort of inherent in the critter that's eaten or latent or it's very little known about it and I said it at the end of the world I said, I would much rather found an omegina on an owl pellet than a bag of gold. That's very true. I mean, there's something that's so boring and ordinary about a bag of gold.
1: About going out into the world and making discoveries, a buddy of mine and I were having a discussion, and I'm telling him about an explorer who had found a lake, so then my friend of mine got back to me, and he's like, "I thought that it was kind of all found, because aren't there satellites everywhere?" So I'm just wondering, what kind of advice and encouragement you have to avid young ecologists and explorers about going out into the world and making discoveries just for themselves.
3: Well, I, I can. This is a good question, and it often comes up in the Explorers Club, of which I am a fellow. Is there anything left to explore? And there are individuals who think, well, nothing on our planet, but we can go into outer space and do exploration. And there are others who are saying nothing terrestrial, but we can go underwater and do ter- uh, exploration.
2: Mm-hmm. My own
3: feeling is that, yes, the satellite may or may not pick up the lake, but it's not going to convey any information about that lake.
2: Yeah, what type
3: yeah. of odd fish are in that lake So I feel, I mean, I might argue that uh, even venturing into a new place close to home is exploration. But certainly when I went to a totally remote island in the Bahamas in December called Mayaguana, off the grid, no tourists whatsoever, and everyone knew and the children knew about medicinal plants. There it is. It's the most remote island in the Bahamas. And it was once thought, and I don't know if it's still thought, that it may have been the first place that uh, Columbus set foot in the New World. It has a small population of a couple of hundred, and they are very, very traditional. few of them do have digital devices, but they don't seem to be obsessed with them because, well, for one thing, there's only one or two places on an island where they can get Wi-Fi. Right. You don't bring out your digital device if you can't get anything on it. The other thing I noticed, and I notice a lot with traditional people, they can see better than I can. Uh, They may not know fungi at all, but they can find them better than I can because they have both feet placed in the natural world. And my guide actually was very good at locating things that I was overlooking because he was able to see the natural world. He was also, I mean, he he worked in the sort of water department on the island and, you know, plumbing, and if somebody's toilet had a problem, he could fix it. But he was also, by definition, as were most people there, a naturalist. Yeah. So we were were looking for a, it's, it's a rare iguana that's only known from this island. Well, what we were really looking for was something that is marsupial that's that's even rarer and i i thought oh look look there's some excrement this is from it and he looked at me and he said no 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 that's iguana shit Mm -hmm. and then he gave me a look there i am i have a doctorate, and he probably doesn't even have a high school diploma he gave me a look that said that i didn't know shit from (laughs) shinola uh uh, but it was a smile as well so uh at any event I explored that island, and I felt that I was exploring that just as I was the jungles of Barneo or someplace in the Arctic. Yes, there are places left to explore, and the reason that, that people think they don't and because of the satellites is because such things, devices like that technology, is obliterating our sense of our own planet. And the fact that, yes, it is supremely developed, supremely injured, much beleaguered, but there are still
1: places to explore. Thank you very much, listeners. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Catch us next week on Grok Science for another interview, and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show.
0: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
1: If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at For Grok Science, I'm Frank
0: Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grocking.